Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Friday, August 5th, and we're talking tech and wrapping up Pop Culture Week with a chat about HBO's Silicon Valley. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined in the studio by the voice of The Motley Fool, Mr. Podcast himself, Chris Hill. How's it going? It's weird. It's weird to be a guest. Yeah, you're sitting, well, you're sitting in the seat you normally sit in. Yes. But you're not sitting in the proverbial host seat. I was going to say, yeah, no, you're the host. I'm, I'm the guest, and so you, you do all the driving. Yes. Uh, I'm pretty psyched about that. It's nice to have that power. Um, <laughs> this is the first time we've ever done anything together, I think. Uh, we, you know what? We did, we did an episode of Market Floor when we were in uh, Austin, Texas. Okay. Yeah, that was, that was on the studio, on the couch. Yes. In the, the, the convention center. South by Southwest Podcast Center, which was great. And now we need to figure out if we're going to go back next year. But that's, you know, that's not what we're here to talk about. No. no. We are here to talk about HBO Silicon Valley and some of the ties into the tech world. Um, I was very excited. I was actually the one that proposed Pop Culture Week among the IF cast because at some point I wanted to kind of do this dissection. It's like such a brilliant show, and they do a really great job of detailing some of the finer points of the startup world out there on the West Coast. As a listener, I've really been enjoying Pop Culture Week on Industry Focus. And so, yeah, and I was very happy that you asked me to do this because, and, and we, we've talked about this before, but Silicon Valley is, is not just a very funny show, it's a very smart show. And, and one of the ways that it's smart is Mike Judge and Alec Berg, who are the creators of the show, work very hard to make sure that the show is real, is authentic. And that goes for everything from the equations that you see on whiteboards. They have consultants to make sure that those things are correct uh, to the overall culture of Silicon Valley, which I know we'll get to. And and just kind of some background here for some listeners that may have never seen the show before. Um, it's a comedy show, like you said. It's from Mike Judge, uh, known for Office Space, Beavis and Butthead, uh, King of the Hill. Yes. So he's he's quite the resume there. Uh, basically, it follows this Silicon Valley computer programmer as he tries to take this software that he's built and created uh, like a legitimate business, some startup that people actually want to invest in, maybe eventually hit that unicorn club. We'll see. Um, if you've never seen it, you can kind of think of it the same way as Entourage or How to Make It in America. HBO seems to have all these shows that are little guy trying to rise in this really tough industry, and it kind of falls into that same category as those other ones. Absolutely. Uh, Maybe a housekeeping note is in order because um, it's an HBO show. There is some profanity. Just no, it's not Game of Thrones, by the way. There's no violence. Yes, um, but there is some profanity. So, but it is such a, a great show and an easy show to binge watch because every season is like eight episodes, ten episodes, that kind of thing. It's and they're a, half an hour. It's half an hour, so you can you can knock it out in a weekend. Yeah. So I wouldn't watch it at work or with your kids, <laughs> but um, you know it's it's a fantastic show. Also, uh, if you are midway through the series, this might be a little spoiler-heavy at times, because we're going to use the show as a vehicle to talk about some things in the tech space and just kind of the venture capital world. So, um, you could always hit pause and then come back to this episode of the podcast, maybe when you finish the series. But I figure it's worth throwing out there. I don't want to ruin the show for you. So, um, I think one of the things that they do very well on the series is give a sense of how startups actually get funded and the process. Because most investors they see the Twitters or Facebooks of the world as pretty much from IPO on, right? They don't see the guts of what gets them into, okay, you have X million dollars in funding, you're working with that, how do you get to the next stage? How do you get to the next stage? And so, very early on, the first episode, uh, the founder of Pied Piper, this fictional company, Richard Hendricks, kind of accidentally gets thrown into this seed funding opportunity. Um, He pitches this music search app to this venture capitalist, Peter Gregory, 
who is uh, the quirky venture capitalist that I think everyone imagines. Quirky billionaire who, among other things, is building his own island. Yes. In the show. With automated robots. Right. Yeah, so just some background there. But um, so, and he shows some programmers at his office. You know, he works at this Google type of place, this program as well. And ultimately, uh, both the people at this VC firm and the people at Hooli, this, this Google esque company, think that while his music search app is very dumb and kind of useless, uh, it is powered by this incredible data compression algorithm uh, that is kind of brilliant and potentially revolutionary. And so, he faces two offers here, um, $4 million as an absolute buyout from the company that he currently works for, Hooli, or $200,000 for a 5% equity in the company from this venture capitalist, Richard Gregory, uh, Peter Gregory. And those deals shake out to the same valuation. The difference is Richard actually owns the business in the equity option from the venture capitalist, whereas he would just be getting a $4 million paycheck from Hooli. Um, and the $200,000 for 5% equity is what we would call a seed investment or seed money. Um, and the reason they call them that is it comes extremely early on in the, in the process. Maybe some semblance of a business, very loose idea of vision, but you basically have something incredible from the tech side, and the application isn't wholly there yet, but there's clearly a lot there under the hood, and there are a lot of different ways you can use it. And so, um, kind of before a company can really generate any of its own cash, it needs some financing to get off the ground, and that's where you see these investors come in. It's one of the little points that comes up in the first season is, and this is, of course, very much how the VC world operates, it comes up that this venture capitalist, you know, he's he's made his $200,000 investment in this data compression company. He's also made similar investments in other data compression like companies. Like eight other ones. Right. So, so and and Richard, the protagonist on the show, is, is sort of hurt by that. Like, what do you mean? You know, and it's like, yeah, that's how VCs work. VCs work because they place all of these small investments, and they know that one out of ten, one out of fifteen or so, is going to hit it big, and it's going to pay for all the others. And they can kind of afford to do that because what you typically see, especially in the seed funding round, is that the stakes tend to run somewhere between ten thousand dollars and maybe a million dollars. That would be a very large seed funding. You don't see that too often. Um, but to your point, these are a lot of small bets that venture capitalists are making. Um, we use VC a lot here in this discussion of seed money. Seed money can come from other places. Um, founders can take out loans. They can raise money from family. Um, there are also options like angel investors. Some people go the crowdfunding route with your Kickstarters and things like that to get off the ground. So I don't want to limit it to just VCs, but that's how you see it portrayed in the show, and I think that's how most people are familiar with it. So early in season two, after they've been seed funded and after they've had this successful uh, TechCrunch appearance, uh, TechCrunch is a very well-known uh, tech convention where people show off um, some of the very, very fantastic stuff that is going on in the tech space. Some of these really early-stage companies that are looking for more money. Um, so Pied Piper wins, TechCrunch disrupt, and uh, multiple venture capital firms approach them about financing the company's Series A round. Um, a Series A round is what follows the seed investment. Basically, businesses go on to get financing through this round, and it generally happens as the company has some proof of concept, and they need some additional funding to keep things going. And Generally, this comes in exchange for uh, preferred stock in the business. Typically, what you'll see in terms of funds being raised in this round, 
it'll be a lot higher than what you see in the seed rounds, typically somewhere between two and ten million dollars, and they'll have a couple different firms involved. Um, there are a couple different reasons that you see the higher amount of money being thrown at these businesses at this point. Uh, one, they've had some sign of success, they've gained some traction, um, there's a more fully formed idea of what's going on with the business. And I think, two, the VCs want some significant skin in the game. You know, For them to invest $10,000 or $50,000 in something isn't going to meaningfully boost returns for them. They, they need to be throwing a million dollars to be picking up a significant portion of these companies. And that's why you see um, some of these investments kind of start to scale out. And just to give you an idea of one of these very successful publicly traded companies that went through their Series A round, early on, um, Facebook, uh, they raised $12.7 million from five different investors in their Series A, and that gave them an implied valuation at the time of $88 million. Isn't that adorable to think about? <laughs> yeah, they are now. Uh, I can't even do the math on, on how much higher that is. Yeah, I mean now it's like the fifth or sixth most valuable public company in the world. Yes, something like that. Hundreds of billions yes. of dollars. Just past Berkshire Hathaway in market cap. Gosh, yeah, that is absolutely incredible. And the way you get to that implied valuation is you take the equity stake that is being offered up in the round, and then multiply it by the total funding raised during the round, and that gets you to the total valuation implied. Um, in the show, you see Richard and his colleagues go from meeting to meeting on Sand Hill Road. And in real life, this is where a cluster of some of the biggest and most influential venture capital firms are in the valley, right? I mean, like this is where your Andreessen Horowitzes are. This is where anything that's getting backed that's really worth anything uh, is getting some financing. I have been to Sand Hill Road. Oh, you have? I've been to it because once upon a time, the Motley Fool took on some venture cap financing. So I, I, I wasn't sitting in the room. I was sort of there. With David and Tom Gardner and, and a couple other folks, I was along for the ride. I was not in the meetings, but I've 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 been in those buildings before, and it's yet another great representation of of sort of capturing of this is this is what this looks like in the real world. Yeah, I'm guessing high priced art up on the walls, yes. <laughs> some some nice distilled water, some some sort of fancy snacks, things like that. Absolutely, it's the kind of thing where you look around and you say, "Yep, these people are doing well." Yeah. So, assuming everything goes successfully with the Series A, you then work your way through Series B, C, D, etc. As long as the company continues to seek financing through the VC side and opts not to go public, um, to give you an idea of how many different rounds this can go through, Twitter actually went from Series A through G. So they they decided to stick around for a while. Some companies don't go through that many; they would do four or something like that. Maybe they seek out some debt at some point and then eventually go public. But um, there, there's no real standard there. It just kind of depends on the company's needs and what management wants to do. Um, one of the big things that they touch upon in the show, uh, Richard meets with a friend who had his own startup, things didn't really go particularly well for him, is the idea of a down round and the fear of a down round. Uh, Chris, you want to touch on that a little bit? Yeah, it was. Um, it, it's yet another thing they do that they get right on the show. And uh, a down round is simply, you know, you you do your Series A financing, you have an implied valuation of X. If you do another follow up round, and the valuation of your private company drops, then it is first of all, it's such a catastrophic sign. And and you can just tell in in the scene where they're having that conversation that the guy like it's the worst possible thing that can happen 
outside of, I guess, I don't know, a tragic accident of some sort. Because it's it's really um, part of what's exciting for companies at this stage when they are private, when they are growing. Is the excitement around it, and I think that's you know it's a great scene when they're going to all the meetings on Sand Hill Road, and you can just see that uh, uh, that Richard and um, uh, Ehrlich are uh, you know sort of the two characters of the show, the two main drivers of the business, and we'll get to business leadership in a second. Um, you can see they they've just got this strut in their step because they know they're in the driver's seat. Everybody wants to invest in their company. If you have a down round, it is the exact opposite. You you are going hat in hand to all these. VC firms trying to get them, trying to convince them that you're still worth investing in, and you have no leverage whatsoever. Yeah, and it's it's kind of the kiss of death in a lot of ways because you know you think about uh, a publicly traded company that has a really poor earnings report. You're like, okay, well they've had years of success, and you know there's an ebb and flow with that business, but we know generally things are going pretty well and they're on the up and up. Uh, a down round is like. This is the second time that we've gotten a glimpse at this company's valuation and some of their growth metrics, and they look terrible. And so, um, it's you don't have that nice steady backlog of success that you can point to. It's much more volatile and much more disruptive, and that's why it can be particularly difficult for companies in that space. Um, that's why you kind of want to see that nice steady climb up. And in the show, they even allude to like, I I could have taken less money. And set my expectations a lot lower, and that's ultimately what they wind up doing: is they they shun what is an incredibly high valuation for the same amount of equity, but less money, so that they can give themselves, I think, more realistic growth targets. That was actually a suggestion that came from Mark Andreessen. You know, we talk about some of the research that they do and the trips that they go on before each season to kind of get ideas for the writers' room, and that's something that he proposes. Like, yeah, I mean, someone could do that if they wanted to. I I've never seen it in the in the world, but I think it's kind of interesting. It's got to be pretty heady, you know. It's uh, it's it's got to be really hard to be sitting across the table from someone who is saying not only here's how much money we're going to give you, and by the way, this means the company you've built is now worth a hundred million dollars, two hundred millions. It's hard not to be seduced by that and to walk away and say, you know what? It's actually better for us in the long run. Uh, long run. To take a breath, go slow, get greater control over the company, and pass up a huge amount of money. Yeah, I do wonder if that's something that might happen. You know, kind of um, reality and fiction blending together. And you know, maybe maybe some entrepreneurs will take that advice. Um, listeners, if you're interested in the pre-IPO process and seeing some of the stages that companies go through, I think you'd be smart to check out some of the sites like Crunchbase and TechCrunch. They do a really good job. Of reporting on the early stage investments that a lot of these private companies go through, um, they do a great job breaking it down round by round. Some of the people that are participating in these rounds, the total value, implied valuation, all that stuff. Um, so that that's kind of our, out of our realm on Fool.com, but those two outlets do a really great job of that. Uh, Chris, one of the other things that we wanted to touch on with the show and kind of how it plays out in reality is the idea of the founder, the person who came up with this brilliant tech idea. Not always being the best suited to actually run the business. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things that I think seems obvious when you, but uh, at the same time is easy to miss. The idea that um, you need balance at a business, you need more than one way of thinking, and we've uh, you know we've talked about Google a little bit today because Google is uh, the the fictional huge company Hooli. 
Um, by the way, that's one of my favorite things about this show is the names the names that they come up with for the fake companies, which I read in an interview with Mike Judge. That was That's one of the more challenging things that they run up against, is when they're just jotting down, well, here are fake names, and then they go and do the research and realize, oh no, actually, some of these are actual companies. Yeah, that's so, a company, right? Yeah. yeah, you don't want to get in trouble there. <laughs> um, but uh, if you think about Google before it went public, and you have Larry Page and Sergey Brin, who are the guys who come up with... Google. They come up with uh, uh, the search algorithm, and along the way, it is clear that they need "quote unquote" adult supervision, and that's where Eric Schmidt enters the picture in 2001. He's an experienced, uh, older business manager with a background in tech, but Schmidt is really um, the business manager. Uh, of the three of them, and he's the one who sort of shepherds them through the IPO process and through really the first decade of Google being a public company. Um, but it's interesting that when he left in 2014, Larry Page takes over. You know, there are all these stories about Eric Schmidt giving him lots of credit, and rightly so, and saying, "Well, you know, Larry Page is sort of, you know, he's grown up, and now he's going to take the reins of the company." But pretty early on in Larry Page's tenure as CEO. I would argue that he brings in another smart, experienced adult who has a skill set that is not really his forte, and that's Ruth Porat. Yeah, CFO. Yeah, and bringing in Ruth Porat was a masterstroke. Um, I remember uh, when the story broke that Google's CFO, a guy whose name I don't even remember, previous CEO, left. I remember we talked about it on Market Foolery, and I, I said, I don't know who Google is going to hire, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be whoever the hell they want. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they're just going to look out across the, the entire world and say, uh, who's the single best CFO who can help us the most? Okay, let's go make that person a godfather offer. And, uh, and they did that with Ruth Porat. And you look at what the company's done since then. Uh, Ruth Porat has I think steered them in a more Wall Street friendly direction. Um, they have also announced plans for share buybacks, and they have an authorization there, so they can opportunistically buy back shares. That's something that old Google probably wouldn't have done. They didn't really care much for what Wall Street wanted to do. They were kind of off doing their own thing and experimenting and changing the world, which is awesome. But um, as an investor, it's always nice to see them making some of those more share shareholder friendly moves. Um, in the show, venture capitalist Lori Breen says to Richard. You've created a company that is too valuable for you to run. Right. You should be proud, <laughs> which is excellent, and I think it kind of embodies this idea. It's of, such a backhanded compliment. Yeah, it's it's you have the technical skills for this brilliant, brilliant algorithm, and you are going to change the world. We need someone else to handle it. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and the, 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 part of the fun of the show is seeing. You know, a, a a character like Ehrlich Bachman, who's played by uh, T.J. Miller, um, who's very full of himself, um, a, a little bit of a buffoon, but he does have his moments throughout all three seasons of Silicon Valley, where he he demonstrates he has a skill set that is valuable and helpful to Richard and Pied Piper. Yeah, and in the show, they allude quite a bit to the the jobs in the Wozniak. Right. Needing both sides of the business brain and not only relying so heavily on the technical skill set. You know, it is not very often that you get a founder and visionary like Mark Zuckerberg who also gets the business. And even with Zuckerberg, I mean, he brought in some great talent right. to, to facilitate them becoming this immensely successful company. He's, he's a phenomenal CEO, but I, I think he would be the first to say, that Sheryl Sandberg and bringing in Sheryl Sandberg as chief operating officer 
and if you look at what she did pre-Facebook, very much a traditional management background and uh, sort of the steady hand. And part of it, not that companies need to go out of their way to cater to Wall Street, because there have certainly been a lot of great businesses over time that have largely ignored Wall Street and the wishes of Wall Street analysts. But I think it, it does send a positive signal to analysts, to investment banks, etc., when they see that type of hire, when they see Ruth Porat, who is hired away from Wall Street, where or Sheryl Sandberg with her background, or an Eric Schmidt. And I'm going to play devil's advocate here. It doesn't always work. You know, right. you you look at what happened with Twitter, and Twitter kind of plays out very similarly to what happens in the show with Pied Piper, where you have Ev Williams running the show. Uh, he goes on paternity leave. They bring in COO Dick Costolo, who had been hired in. He was not part of the founding team there, and he runs the company for four or five years. He brings them public to debatable success. You know, yes. uh, they they. It, the vision hasn't been clear. The results haven't been great, and now you have Jack Dorsey, a founder, back at the helm. Um, that's not all that different than what plays out in the show, where you have uh, Richard Hendricks get unseated because they want a CEO for hire type person, someone that went to business school, has written case studies, all of this stuff. Um, and his name in the show is Action Jack Barker. Jack Barker, who is an excellent character, um, and they disagree on pretty much everything. Uh, and he is very growth focused, very what's going to improve the bottom line and what's going to raise the share price and valuation of the business. Uh, and Richard's obsessed with the product and wants to make the best technical specs. And they fight and they fight and they fight. And eventually, uh, it kind of plays out well for Richard. He gets his way and um, they wind up kind of maybe begrudgingly giving him back his CEO seat. But um, another art imitating life, imitating art, <laughs> kind of kind of work around there. Um, one last thing I wanted to touch on with the show, I think, is the Valley culture side of things, uh, and the way that they present that on the show. I think one of the best quotes from the entire series is from the Google-esque Hooli, uh, the CEO and founder there, uh, Gavin Belson. I don't want to live in a world where someone else makes the world a better place, better than we do. Right, and this is this is one of those things that comes up time and again in the show uh, that is very much fueled from real life. Um, when we were in Austin, Texas, at, at South by Southwest earlier this year, there was um, a breakout session with Mike Judge, Alec Berg, and a few of the stars of Silicon Valley that I went to. And one of the first questions that Mike Judge got was, "Well, how is this show now that you know you're just about to launch season three? How is this show perceived in Silicon Valley?" And he said, "You know, it's interesting because in general, people really like it. Um, it we're very well received. Um, people are still willing to talk to us. Um, but you know, one of the things that we run into now is we'll meet with a company and the people there will say, "Oh, we think it's great how on the show you." You know, you make fun of how we all say that we're going to make the world a better place, and then in the next breath they'll say, "But you know, here at this company, we actually are." And here's, you know, and so there, there really is this sort of sense of self-importance that it's like, you know, what? It's fine that you're a tech company that just makes a great widget. There's nothing wrong with that. Please stop pretending that you're having this transformative effect on planet Earth. Yeah. Um, uh, Zach Woods, who's uh, one of the actors on the show uh, in that same panel session, talked about, um, uh, you know, sort of work that he did to learn about Silicon Valley and <laughs> going somewhere. I think he might have gone to some type of, of pitch 
uh, it, it might have even been TechCrunch Disrupt, um, and where someone stood up and was pitching their idea and literally said, our app, and he didn't even say what the app did, uh, Zach Woods didn't say what the app did, but he, the guy literally said, our app is the Gandhi of apps. And I was like, what? What in the world does that even mean? Are you kidding? So, yeah, yeah. yeah some, sometimes the valley can be a little bit myopic in its yes. in its altruism and maybe lack some self awareness. Another thing that that they do really well on Silicon Valley, and this shows up in real life, is the the notion of how quickly word travels in a company town. Silicon Valley is a company town, and the and the business is tech. Washington D.C. is a company town, and the business is politics. L.A. Hollywood and entertainment in all three of those cities in real life, word does travel very quickly, and it can be very positive or it can be very negative, as we talked about earlier with the the whole notion of a down round. Yeah, and another kind of testament to that, another example of that in the show, um, they are looking to hire some talent, and word gets out that Ehrlich Bachman, who has a ten percent stake in the company is shopping that 10% stake. The reason he's selling it is because he made some very poor investments with right. his other money and he needs to cover his own liabilities. But people in the valley don't know that. They only know that word is he's shopping his shares and that must not be good for business. So, um, you know, that that's just another example of kind of how that plays out. I think one of the other things that's a real treat for someone that enjoys the tech world with the show is the cameos that you see and some of the people that they get on stage. And you know, some of it can be um, a little self-aggrandizing. Some of it can be self-effacing. I think they do a good job of kind of striking that balance. But one of my favorite moments was when they had Evan Spiegel, who is the co-founder of Snapchat, speaking at the um, uh, the funeral of uh, Peter Gregory. And uh, spoiler alert: Peter yeah. Gregory dies. <laughs> yeah, that's how it starts out in season two, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, and he says, you know. I'm sure if Peter Gregory were here, he would say he was not disappointed in Snapchat, you know, as an investment. Um, but you know, you get these guys that are revered in the space uh, to come on and, and just be characters, little characters in this larger playing show, them, playing themselves, playing themselves. You know, other people that have been on the show, Eric Schmidt, who we talked about before, uh, Tyler and Cameron Winklevoss from the Facebook, yeah. <laughs> allegedly, and uh, you know, Dick Costolo, uh, former CEO of Twitter, who we talked about. So. Um, it's always fun to kind of spot who's coming into the scenes because oftentimes it's a very famous face. Yeah, it's um, if if nothing else, this this is a show definitely worth checking out. I mean, beyond the real life um, applications that you can take away as investors, um, but but again, as you as you touched on, those very much exist, um, and it's a great indication um, of a world that. Leads to the world that is right in the sweet spot of the Motley Fool. You know, we we focus almost exclusively on public companies. It doesn't mean we're not looking at the private companies and eager for the S one to come out. But if you look at what's happened since Silicon Valley first went on the air, one of the things we've seen in the real world of investing is pulling back the reins a little bit, tightening up the reins on the rush to go public. Because um, you mentioned unicorns, for for those unfamiliar, unicorn is a private company with a valuation of a billion dollars. Um, there was uh, the the quote going around last year uh, from uh, someone on Wall Street saying, "I think this year we might see some dead unicorns," and that's you know, and and that's it certainly has played out. And I think that we've seen, I would argue, with Twitter, but certainly with other companies as well, going public isn't always. 
the greatest thing in the world. It's much harder to be a public company than a private company. And that's why I think you see a company like Uber, which, if it were a public company today, would, would very easily have a valuation of somewhere between $75 and $100 billion. But that is a company that is not looking to go public. Yeah, and and you've seen that even with just the cadence of IPOs recently. I mean, I can only think of two really big tech IPOs off the top of my head. Um, you know, Twilio being one, and that was the largest of the year, and that was about two months ago. But there was kind of a drought there for a while. Um, I do think looking at the private space, it's always interesting to see um, what's getting VC money and also what private companies are getting scooped up by public companies. You know, it's kind of a, a signal for where these companies are looking to position themselves, where they want to play, and some of the big tech trends to watch in the coming time. I'm really excited for season four, because I'm, I have no idea where they're going to go. Yeah. I, I, I would be curious to see if they actually look to take Pied Piper public. We'll just have to wait and see. I'll be there. Yeah. Well, listeners, that does it for Pop Culture Week and this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or just want to reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com. You can always tweet us at MF Industry Focus. If you're looking for more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes or check out the Fool's family of shows at fool.com slash podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. For Chris Hill, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening and Fool on. Fool on.